and so I'm kind of like, I don't do drugs. This isn't my thing. And what he pulls out was far, far, far more dangerous. It was Jenga. And the four of us, plus the, the staff there, spent the next three hours getting absurdly drunk, battling in Jenga. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 250. We're a quarter of a way to a thousand. New York City's population is over 40% foreign-born, and New York City has the highest Puerto Rican population of any city in the world, the highest Chinese population of any city outside Asia, and the highest Jewish population of any city outside Israel, as well as one naked cowboy. We've all heard the saying, nothing good happens after 2 a.m., but today's guest is going to flip that on its head and show you why only the best things happen after 2 a.m. And if that holds true, then the idea for the brand new Tortuga Outbreaker backpack had to happen after 2 a.m. because this thing is absolutely amazing. I just got mine in the mail last week. And if you are looking for the best travel backpack, Tortuga Backpacks has outdone themselves with their brand new Outbreaker pack. You're going to have to go to the website and check it out. They've redone the website. They've totally redone the backpack. It is absolutely incredible. It comes in a 45 liter size, which is the biggest carry-on size that you can get. Also comes in a smaller 35 liter size, which is perfect for shorter trips or weekend trips. And it is insanely awesome. So if you've been waiting for the brand new Tortuga backpack to come out, it is finally out. Go check it out. Pick one up. I am super excited to travel with this brand new backpack. And also, good news, our promo code still works. So no matter what you buy at TortugaBackpacks.com, if you use the promo code EPOP, E-P-O-P, that will get you 10% off your entire order. Go check it out. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone who not only ran with the bulls, but also got trampled by one who was a geek before it was cool to be a geek, you know, way back in the 90s, and who believes nothing good happens after 2 a.m. except for the most epic experiences of your life. John Levy, author of The 2 a.m. Principle and creator of The Influencer's Dinner. John, thanks for joining me today, and welcome. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited. Yeah, and today we're going to cover a lot of stuff. We're going to talk about how to, how to party crash with par- proper etiquette, why traveling, especially alone, tests your character more than almost anything else, how to turn a boring night into an epic adventure through science, and how John got himself invited to Kiefer Sutherland's Thanksgiving dinner. We're not going to let you off the hook without, <laughs> without you telling that story. Uh, Deal. But John, first, I was just going through your Instagram feed a few minutes ago. You had a photo shoot. You're at the Emmys. You're in Georgia, a country that I actually just got back from uh, a couple days ago. So first question, where are you beaming in from today? Uh, I'm currently in Los Angeles. I was just hosting two influencers dinners uh, at Three o'clock, I managed to find a flight hack that 
potentially makes it cheaper for me to fly on a private jet home than uh, to fly standard commercial, which was ridiculous. All right. Well, you got it. All right. What is the hack? What do you what are you doing there? So I since I don't work for a company, I work on my own schedule and I get to pick what I do. Uh, There's a company called Jet Smarter. And it's uh, it's like a ten thousand dollar a year uh, fee. And it's all you can fly on private jets. Now, not all the routes are available all the time and so on. But because the routes that they have are the ones that I need, I end up being able to use their flights like perfectly to my schedule. Not only that, but they have this thing called an empty leg uh, program, which is if they have a flight that's just one directional, an empty leg, you can bring a plus one. So what's the ultimate date? You call up someone lovely you say hey how would you like to go by private jet to some obscure place it could be anything from portland maine to uh jackson hole right and you say and here's the fun part we're going to figure out how to get home together and so it's this encapsulated adventure that uh you have a clear time limit on when you have to be home by so that you don't miss work or whatever it is but you get to fly in in class and then go to these places that you probably wouldn't go otherwise and get to explore in new ways that is awesome i actually was looking at jet smarter when it first came out you know whatever it was a year ago when they first had all the publicity and yeah unfortunately nothing was working out with my schedule and we're always traveling anyway i'm like this won't work but i've seen a few people take advantage of it so it's awesome to hear that firsthand experience and um yeah it's still open i think i'm not sure to people who can join i I, I think it is. I yeah. mean, if anybody wants to join it, uh, mention me and I'll, I'm sure they'll take care of you. And so or if you have any questions, just you can reach out through my website. Yeah, sure there we, we go. Support your listeners. Yeah, I didn't think we'd be throwing a flight hack out there within the first couple of minutes, but that's kind of how it goes. And uh, people travel a lot and, and want to figure out some awesome ways to have these experiences. What I want to do first is take us way back before all this craziness, before flying on the private jets and the dinners and the books to when you were a kid in the 90s, just like myself, because that experience is what really brought forth the idea for the book and then everything that has come from it and everything you're doing now. So talk to us a little bit about what what it was like for you growing up and how that spurred on what you're doing now. So when I was a child, I was super geeky. I'd watch lots of Star Trek. I uh, loved playing on my computer. But back then, that wasn't like a cool thing to do. It wasn't like there were all the superhero movies that we have now. Reading comic books was considered kind of lame. And uh, my eighth grade teacher decided one day to throw out the seating chart and let us secretly submit two people we want to sit with and two people we don't want to sit down with. And through an unfortunate series of events, I found out that there was like not only one kid that nobody really wanted to sit down next to, but that I was that kid. And I was heartbroken. And uh, but as a geek, I thought, you know, in social skills, I'm more than made up for in my uh, thinking or scientific thinking. And if I could use science to my benefit to understand people, then I could live a life where I'm I make friends and I connect. And, you know, one of the big heroes for me was Ferris Bueller and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And uh, and so it was uh, just a. Uh, I then began to just look at all this research and test different ideas uh, to to make that happen. 
Yeah, funny uh, story enough, but Ferris Bueller's Day Off was the only movie my mom would never let me watch, right? Because it was like PG-13. This is when I was a little kid. Amazing. And of course, like whenever I'd stay home from school, when I that that, that magical period when you stay home from school because you're too sick, but you're old enough to be home on your own, like maybe 10 to 12, that's the first thing going in the VCR was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And it is, it's this idea that like, you know, he's cool. The uh, the other guy, his friend, who I can't remember, not cool. Cameron. Cameron, Cameron, right. Not cool. But, you know, there is a way to build adventure. And obviously, he does it all in one day and, and all that. And then that's what kind of spurred this idea for you of, of a science around adventure, which, you know, seems pretty disparate, I think, on the surface of, wait, science and adventure. Those two things don't mix. So you're growing up, you have this idea. When did it really start to take hold that, Okay, there is more to this than just a kid who's not sitting next to someone. Like I, th- I think I'm on to something. I never thought there was a formal process, but I began to see that there were like very clear patterns and best practices. And then one day I was uh, sitting talking to my friend who this was back in like 2008, who worked at uh, who works at Reuters, and he goes, "You know, you should uh, do a book about nightlife." And I'm like, "No, that's like kind of lame. I, nobody really cares about nightlife." But there might be something more here. There might be like an actual pattern, like a kind of like John Nash trying to find that uh, what is it, governing dynamics. And uh, so I took all the photos of a, from about like 10 or 15 years of wild nights out and trips and experiences. And I laid them out and I looked for patterns and I was like, OK, well, it's always about the right group of people. That's the first thing that's really clear. And if I really look, most of the time when I have really extraordinary experiences, I'm in a new location. So there has to be something about that. So I started looking at the research about uh, how the brain responds to novelty. And it turns out that there's a, uh, your brain responds proportionately to how novel the experience is. Uh, It releases dopamine, which leads to neuroplasticity, essentially the creation of new memories, right? If something is different, or strange, the brain wants to understand it. And so if something is new, we actually begin to have a desire to explore and understand it. So rather than go to the same bars you always go to or the same places on vacation, if you go somewhere new, you'll be you'll have a tendency to want to explore more. And so that opens you up to having an adventurous experience. We told people we're going to get into science already, which I love. Already we're talking about the dopamine and stuff like that. But when you were a kid, right, and, and you're this geeky kid and no one wants to sit next to you, and then you, you transition to like, hey, look at all these wild nights out. What about that in-between period? Because that seems like, hey, wait, dorky kid, no one wants to sit next to him. Oh, my gosh, he has pictures of for 15 years of these crazy nights. What happened in between there that helped you actually become that person that now you're, you're writing about and you're saying, hey, this can happen for anyone? What, what were the steps involved? So it was a lot of trial and error and mostly incredibly awkward failures. Anything from like talking to a girl I liked to, uh, to, you know, trying to throw a party and nobody wanting to come. And a lot of it was a willingness to just fail. Because at a certain point I had to say, you know what? I, I've, Like I'm rock bottom, like what am I going to lose? Uh, And so I would, uh, I'd start off by trying to watch the TV shows that the kids in my class watched uh, so that I could fit in. 
but they quickly realized that I had no idea what I was talking about when they would chat about it. And because I just didn't care about Melrose Place or 90210 or whatever it was. And I wanted to watch Star Trek. Uh, so there was an element of like, okay, there's certain things that I can do that will be natural and clear and certain things that are just going to fail because they're just not me. And then the biggest breakthrough probably occurred when I went off to summer camp and I had this entire new audience of people that I'd never engaged with. So I could kind of re kind of create myself uh, as this new human being rather than trying to convince all these people that I that have known me for years that I'm a different person or I'm a cool person. And so that fresh start made a huge difference. I, I think that's inherently a lot of the reason why people want to travel. And it's not it's not that everyone wants to escape their life at home or they have a bad life or anything, but that when you are traveling, you are always interacting with people who have no idea what you've done before, don't know who you are, don't have preconceived notions, none of that, not only because they don't know you, but also because culturally some of the stuff that you might like fits in better different places. I saw this when I lived in Japan, you know, some of the people who maybe were really big nerds, really big geeks when they were living in the States come to Japan, all of a sudden, like, I'm the nerd because I'm not reading anime and I don't know what's going on, right? And I can't talk about it. So it's really neat that changing your location, not only because you're meeting new people, but also because you're then in a different culture that might respect things differently or like things differently, really can make you a brand new person. I think it becomes pretty intoxicating to have that feeling of, hey, I can recreate myself and be a, a truer me, really. It's uh, one of the things that I often like to do is I'll try out something completely different. Like when I travel, I'll bring an outfit that I'd never wear back home and I will go and I'll like try it on and see how I like it and see if it, if I get a good response and if it, if it looks good and I start feeling comfortable, I wear it back home. But it's, I use it as like a testing ground and a playground for aspects of my personality that don't normally get expressed. Yeah, I think that, and I think that's a really cool idea. Something I'll have to steal from you now. Uh, my wife will be happy because it'll lend, I'll have more than like three shirts now as well. Cause I'll have, I'll be like, John told me to get an outfit that I'm not going to wear at home. I'll try it out. When you, when you started doing this though, when you started experimenting and when you started traveling more, and like you said, you came home from summer camp and then obviously became uh, like older and a young adult and doing quote unquote crazier things or at least saying, I'm going to break this code or try to break this code. What was the reaction from people who did know you then? Were people like, oh, John, you're so different? Or was it like this gradual thing that just kind of happened and snuck up on people? I think it was more gradual. So uh, I think in general, there's this impression that like change occurs so instantaneously. But it it took a lot of trial and error and a lot of uh, experiments um, and when you're 16, 15, you don't necessarily have the playground to run new experiments all the time because you're, first of all, in high school trying to just fit in and understand what's going on. And then the second is that the people already have this preconceived notion of you that you're mostly around. So even if you do something different, it will probably take them a while to realize changes to, are taking place. For you, uh, did you go away to school, like university, college, and was that something that allowed you to change as well because you're with new people? Was that because oh, yeah. that happens with I a lot of people, right? It's like a hey, this is a brand new life experience. I can I can change. 
So, yeah, I, I did a whole bunch of kind of funny things just to see what it's like. So I, I uh, when I went to college, I shaved off all my hair, uh, which, which did not look good. The back of my head is really flat. Um, what else did I do? I, I got an eyebrow ring. That was kind of like the big thing back then. Uh, so, you know, I tried out all these things and I ended up realizing, you know what, that's, um, that's not really for me. I ended up uh, growing my hair out and getting rid of the eyebrow ring, but I, uh, but I still believe in trying out different looks. So I, I, up until two years ago, I was incredibly clean cut uh, shaved every morning, short hair. And uh, now over the course of two years, I have a man bun and a beard and I look like every hipster from Brooklyn. So it's, uh, and what I did about that was, and, and frankly, I don't necessarily even like having a beard, but I realized that I am not the expert of how I should look. There are people who professionally help you look your best. And so I gave away my opinion on that. And I put it in the hands of a professional and they said, okay, this is the process we're going to go through and this is what you should try. And I was incredibly uncomfortable with it, but I said, you know what, this is an experiment. And for the most part, people keep coming to me being like, oh my God, you look so good. And so I'm happy I did it. That is, that's fascinating that, that even something is, I don't want to say as simple, but as, as normal or as every day that most people would never give a thought to, they like, this is how I look. And maybe they change it on their own, but you were willing to say, all right, I'm going to give it totally to someone else to tell me to do whatever they think looks better. And they did. Now, do you feel comfortable that way now? Do you prefer it or is it just, all right, it is what it is at this point. It is what it is. It's, uh, I I don't think about it. It's kind of like I think Steve Jobs and the turtleneck and jeans. It's this is what I wear. I don't have to like I put no effort into it. I want to make less decisions. I my work requires such a high cognitive load that I want to make as few decisions before I start my work every day. And let's talk about that then with your work and and what that involves and and because we talked about like the, the cool stuff, right? Hey, you, you're in LA, you're going to get on a jet, like a private jet. Uh, we talked about the fact that you were, you were in Georgia and you were traveling around. But what does a day-to-day life look like? I mean, if you can encapsulate in some way uh, for you. Um, I'm usually in a different city every week. So uh, it's, I think I, I tends to be about four or five days of the average Sometimes it'll get a little bit longer, like uh, a week. And I will usually spend, if I'm in a foreign city, the entire morning uh, typing, <laughs> either writing a book, answering emails, working on a project. I'm working on research right now. So we just finished a study on what causes people to date on mobile dating. Uh, I'm working on another study right now on uh, coupons and how to how we use them. Um and then I have another study that I'm going to work on uh, about inception. So I am uh, I'm work with a neuroscientist by the name of Moran Cerf who has a triple appointment in MIT, Kellogg, and NYU. And uh, so I get to work on research, which is fascinating. And then everything else day to day, I have a secret dinner club that I run 
that's been going on for about seven years. I just hosted the 95th dinner. And what we do is we invite 12 people at a time. None of them know each other. And when they arrive, they're not allowed to talk about what they do or even give their last name. They cook dinner together. They sit down to eat and they guess what their fellow participants do. And that's when they find out that it's a Nobel laureate sitting across from an award-winning author and the president of a television network sitting across from the editor-in-chief of a magazine, a two-time Olympic gold medalist sitting next to the star of a popular TV show. And I've hosted over, I think, 800 and something people uh, over the years. And it's developed into this community of really extraordinary and wonderful people. And uh, we created a spinoff program called The Salon, where we have three famous speakers speak, mostly former dinner guests, and often a musical act perform. So like Bill Nye the Science Guy will talk, followed by a famous architect, and then one of the, the former roots will perform. And uh, 60 people come to that. And so I have a staff of people who just run that for me and who uh, manage all the communications and scheduling. And there's a lot. So in the next month, because of the book, I'm doing 20 events. And it's absolute craziness. Well, what's pretty neat about that, A, if you're a kid from the 90s, Bill Nye the Science Guy is like the pinnacle. Our right? heroes, right? <laughs> Especially of geekdom. <laughs> right, like, right. He's the grandfather. Uh, the grandfather. Yeah. So what's neat is that you put your money where your mouth is. You know, you, you're talking about, hey, this is how you connect. This is interactions, this and that. But you actually say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it in practice. I'm not just going to write about it. I'm not just going to try it on myself. But here I am. I'm going to put together these dinners with highly influential people and, and put into practice exactly the things that I'm outlining. Now- my thought with the influence there, my question, I guess, is you said you've been doing it for seven years. How did that come about? And I've got a follow up to that is like, how did you first start? Because like you said, you, you kept trying before and putting stuff together. No one would show up. What about the influencers dinner? Was it tough to get started? Or was this an idea that people gravitated towards right away? And, and all of a sudden you're like, this is something that, that really has legs. So I think the answer is everything's tough to get started. Like no matter what, right? Um, even if there's a turnkey solution to get yourself into the mental state to take on a project is daunting. And it, what always surprises me is how long, even if you're a professional, it takes to get anything done. And so when people even accomplish a small portion of something like that, uh, I'm incredibly impressed. Um, and so for years I knew I wanted to do something. I didn't know what it was. Um, I was sitting in a seminar and I talk about this, uh, this research behind this in the book, specifically when I'm talking about, uh, selecting the right teams and the seminar leader says something, uh, that changed my life. He said the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives are the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. Uh, all of us know that's true, but very few of us select our friends based on the qualities we admire. We pick people generally because they're near us. And there's research to suggest that as well. What I found was startling. There's uh, two researchers, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, and they were looking at the effects of our social networks on our lives. And specifically, they were curious about the obesity epidemic. Obesity, they were curious, does obesity spread from person to person like a, uh, what's it called? Like a, a cold? Or is it something that's a percentage of the population like uh, let's say Alzheimer's, right? And what they found was startling. Let's say you have an obese friend. Your chances of becoming obese increased by 
your friends who don't know them, 25% increase, their friends, 10%, and their friends, 5%, which means that we have an effect four social degrees out, which is staggering, which means that if I want to affect the quality of my life, not only do I want to surround myself with extraordinary people, but I want those extraordinary people to know each other so that I can uh, have, so they can have an impact on each other and thereby also on me even more. And so I focus not on networking, but on community building because it's network is strongest when the connections between the people are, there's a multitude of them. And so I want to create very strong and deep relationships between people. Have you found then with the, with the dinner and any other type of connections that you've done that connecting with people becomes easier the more you do it, you know, with the idea that, all right, you meet one person who introduces you to another, who introduces you to another, like you said, it kind of starts spreading because now you're changing your circle and your environment. Is that true? And was that something that happened with this secret dinner, with the influencers dinner where, all right, after you got a few under your belt, then it was a little easier to get people to come or people that maybe you, you admired to come? So it definitely built on itself. I had no idea what I was doing. The first, <laughs> Which is how it is when you start anything for the most part. Yeah. The first 10 dinners, we kept changing the meals. Uh, they varied in how... Uh, how successful the meal was. We tried sushi once, which was like a total train wreck. Rice was everywhere. And then they're like, the vegetarians had not much to eat. So they like, it was, it was just a mess. So there's this early stage where like, you have no clue what you're doing and you're just frantically trying to figure things out. Uh, but I kept just doing it and doing it. And somewhere around probably like the seventh or 10th dinner, we settled on a menu that works for everybody. And then, uh, we kept refining and every dinner we changed and I got, what was more important was I got better at describing it, that I got better at understanding how to communicate it to people from different backgrounds. So what would interest you as a celebrity might not interest you as a scientist, right? So for the celebrity, the anonymity thing is really uh, a high sales point because everybody's talking to them about their work constantly. Whereas for a, Olympian, uh, or certainly it might be like the cooking. I don't even know. Right. But the key was understanding how to communicate and who, which examples to give and how to say it in like two to three sentences. I walked up to a famous actor one time and I said, I'm going to say three sentences. And when I'm done, you're going to ask to cook me dinner. And then I said the sentences and he goes, that's my agent. Let's do this. Yeah, so you realize that, hey, I got to keep it short, obviously, to, to anyone, but especially to people who are bombarded all the time. And then you want to do something that's really out of left field that they wouldn't have experienced before, yes, essentially. It's about novelty, right? Which is a lot of what adventure is about. It's about doing something new and different. Um, and then it's about uh, being highly curated. And then because the people who are are there constantly being asked for things and everybody wants something from them. It's about providing something with no expectation of getting anything in return. And that so, thing that you're providing with the dinner is the experience of a night where they can come cook, be anonymous, have good conversation mm -hmm. with no type of expectations put on that. Yes, absolutely. 
What what so, is the most surprising thing about how it has evolved? Because you said, you know, seven to ten in, you kind of change the menu. You're like, all right, this is working. Has there been anything else that's evolved that you had like that has really shocked you? Like, I didn't ever think it would go in this direction. Um, I didn't have much expectations for it in general. Uh, and when the rules was that I wasn't going to define something and so it, I wanted it to be its own, to have its own life independent of my desires. So if I saw it was going in a certain way, I'd just let it go that way. Um, things that surprised me is how happy people were to participate, right? When you're 95 dinners in it, like you don't realize that this is so different from what their day to day is. And I'm every day meeting these extraordinary human beings, uh, but to them, that level of exposure and intimacy and building a friendship that quickly uh, is a very rare experience. So I, I think that that's what's always surprising is how happy. Right? I recently hosted an author that sold a million copies of his book. Like nobody sells a million copies of a book. And he was just like totally swept into the experience and loved it. And he was so thankful. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's one of my idols. Right? Like, yay, he likes me. Right. Like that that uh, eighth grade version of me that was so unpopular was like, this is not believable. Um, another one that was just like totally caught me off guard was when I was a child, every day I'd come home and I'd watch Transformers. And there was this one voice that was like greater than all the rest. It was the voice of Optimus Prime, the leader of the Transformers. And my one of my childhood here, uh, sorry, dreams was to be uh, to meet Optimus. Uh, now I know it's not a real person, but the voice is uh, what mattered. And so I I had hosted, and he's one of my best friends now, uh, the producer of X Men and Transformers and Battlestar, Tom DeSanto, and uh, he goes, John, I have a treat for you. Peter Cullen is coming to dinner. And so after the dinner, he pulled me aside and he goes, this has been fantastic. Uh, I want to do something for you. And so he's like, do you have your, can you record on your phone? I go, yeah. And he records my induction into the Autobots by Optimus Prime. And I was like, this is the craziest thing in the world. I couldn't be happier. That it is, it's fascinating when you are so, I guess, heart first or, or without expectations. Like you allow people to come and don't expect anything from them. How something as quote unquote simple, and I know it's not simple to put together by any means, but something as simple as, hey, they're going to come, they're going to have dinner, something they've done in hundreds of homes around the world, you know, or they've been out to dinner thousands of times can be something that is so important to people who maybe don't get that chance all the time to just have a really intimate, sit-down, normal time around the table with people who respect them, and but even without, like as you said, expecting something from them. Yeah, it's been a, a, a real treat and a real privilege over the years. That, That's that, for sure. That is incredible. Now, with the guests at this point, are you... Do you quote unquote like seek out people or is that or now has it kind of spread to the part where it's known and people are requesting, hey, I'd like to come to this dinner. Or, I know this person. I think you'd get along well with them type thing. It's mostly recommendations. Uh, I have a research person that works for me and their only job is to source potential guests um, because we open up additional cities constantly. So I think we have uh, eight cities now. 
And uh, when we start a new city, we don't know who's there. And so uh, my research person like tracks down all the premier business people and celebrities that live there and scientists and all that. Uh, and then they go through a board review. So I have people who are experts in every industry who are former dinner guests and they give me a yay or nay on guests. Uh, so because frankly, I'm not an expert at almost anything in comparison to the variety of, of uh, topics that are out there. And so I rely on their input. So I don't really pick who comes to the dinner anymore. Like I have a system at place that, that selects the right equation of people, but it's handled by a committee and by my uh, admin, Jarvis. Interesting. So. Yeah, and, and one of the things that, that hits me when you're talking about that is the preparation involved. And uh, I should have thought that that would be where the answer would go, knowing that you talk about preparation and that being the key to adventure. And that's what you're talking about in the 2 a.m. principle. And I got to admit, when I first started reading the book, I thought like, okay, this is kind of bullshit. Because one of the first lines is that the best experience comes from preparation. And I thought, you know, instantly in my head, I'm like, no way. You know, my two favorite travel days ever, you know, one just happened in Georgia. We talked about that on the podcast for people who are listening. You know, they're completely unplanned and unpredictable. Like in my head, like that's what I was thinking. So I'm like, all right, I can't wait to get John on. I'm going to dispel this idea really quickly. Let's talk about some other stuff. Then I read for like one or two more pages and I realized that the preparation that you talk about isn't this... 11 a.m., we're going to go see this. 11.25, we're drinking coffee at this cafe. 12, we're getting on the big red tourist bus. It's something way, way different. You know, less rigid, still planned, just in a different way. So basically, in five pages, you have successfully altered my whole mindset, forced me to really look at things completely different. So give us the scoop, this how and why you plan adventure. So let me just uh, point out, there's, I claim that there are four stages to every adventure. Establish where you put the right elements in place. Push boundaries where you uh, get outside your comfort zone. Increase where you maximize the emotional value of the environment that you're in. And then continue. Here you decide where the next place you're going to go is and loop through the system again. Or you're going to end with style. And it's critical to end on a positive note. Now, during the established stage, you want to make certain critical decisions. The first is who your team of people are. We discussed that the right group of people can make a terrible party. It's just awesome. And the wrong group can make the most amazing experience miserable. Uh, so that's when I say you're preparing or establishing things that selecting who you're with isn't setting what time to be on the bus. And it's also okay to set what time you'll be on the bus, but it's different. It's making sure that you're setting things up so that anything can happen. My hunch is if you had this amazing day in Georgia, who were you with? My wife. Uh-huh. Right. So you had a well, good team. Yeah. So as soon as I started reading through, I'm like, oh, man, he's got me here, right? Like, I'm with someone who I enjoy being around 90% of the time, right? Um, and, and, you know, and then the other characters who came into it were, you know, unpredictable. We didn't know it was going to happen. But I had already set the intention of, all right, well, I'm with her. Anything can happen. We're both open to it. And she was actually the one that pushed it along and said, no, 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 let's do it. If I had been on my own, I might have said, eh, maybe next time. So mm -hmm. you got me there. <laughs> so the other is uh, location. So preferably you're in a new location or exploring somewhere new. We discussed that the brain uh, actually functions differently in those environments, um, at which it seems that you were in a new location. 
And then I often recommend setting a mission for your experience, a goal that will bond you. Now, this is especially important when you're in an environment that's very familiar. And the reason is that if you're in a small town and there's the same two bars uh, or activities to do, by creating essentially a game for the night, you are able to view those uh, familiar environments in new ways. So let's say your goal was, I'm going to go out, uh, but I refuse to spend any money. So I have to accomplish eating a full meal and uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, and drink without spending a dollar. Now you have a game, right? You have a mission and you have constraints and you have to balance those. And the objective is to set a mission that is hard enough that you uh, that it's exciting for you, but not so hard that it's just impossible and you'll give up. And the constraints are there to essentially catalyze creativity. So you can say, okay, I'm going out for dinner or drinks, but without the constraints, that's not interesting. So you add the constraints of, oh, but it, I can't spend any of my own money. Now that you have a lot of ways you can actually go about this. You could play the trading game. You remember how people always talk about like, oh, I started with a paper clip and I kept trading and trading and trading. I ended up with a house. Yeah. One of right? my favorite stories, like one of the guys who pushed me to run my own website and do a podcast way back when was this idea of Kyle McDonald doing one red paper clip and trading up. And I thought, this dude's doing something way different than I could ever imagined. Of course, I could do my own thing, right? When I'm talking about establishing the right elements in place. It's about the right team, a new location, a mission and constraints. So that way you have the, the basic elements. And if you actually look at a great adventure story, you have the same thing, right? You have, if we're talking Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you have the team, right? You have Cameron, uh, Sloan and Ferris, and you have a location. They're like, no, 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 we're not staying in town. We're going into the city. And then they have the mission, which is to cheer up uh, Cameron because he's depressed. And you have the constraints, which is you can't get caught by your uh, principal. You can't get caught by our family. And we have to be get the car back by a certain time or Cameron's dad will kill you. Right. So and that's all established before they even leave. Now, that's what catalyzes the the adventure. Then you have all the other stuff. Yeah. So, all right. So we've got through establish and it is, it's fascinating to think of it in a way that when you break it down like that, you're like, oh yeah, common sense. I need the right people around me. And you know, but it's really, it's not common sense because so many people end up going through life and going through their day to day, not actually even paying any heed to it. Right? Like, okay, well, like I said, this is my neighbor. This is the person I went to high school with and they're my friends, which can be great and, and all, but if you're a little more intentional about it, a lot of stuff can happen that you, that you never would have dreamed of. When you get to then pushing the boundaries, what does that look like for, for an epic night? So one of the claims I make is that you don't have an adventure unless you grow from the experience. You have to be a different person at the end. And that means that you have to be able to take on risk of failing something, right? Uh, so... Pushing boundaries means that you're either crossing some kind of social, physical, or emotional boundary. Emotional being an internal uh, block that you have. Social being rules defined by society that aren't necessarily real. And then physical boundaries 
either your own physical limits or the limits of the environment, right? So climbing over something or uh, pushing yourself to go further than you've gone before. And so that could be talking your way into a nightclub. It could be going on a really crazy hike, like I'm going to hike the Adirondacks, right? Uh, Or it could be something completely different, like I... I've walked into this bar. I'm really nervous, uh, but I'm going to go talk up to uh, go talk to those strangers and see if they want to join us for the night of craziness. Now, all those things are completely valid. And the key is to just keep doing that wherever you go so that you have an expanded version of yourself by the end. Because the ultimate gift of adventure isn't this crazy story. Those will be forgotten often, but it's the expanded capacity that you get to keep after because once you've expanded your capacity uh, there's that quote a mind once stretched never returns to its original size once you have that expanded capacity it's it's yours to keep yeah and when you when you get to that increase stage then because we're going through the the epic which is described in the book epic you know establish a p push boundaries increase and then continue What does that look like for someone? Because the, the I like how you just, the continue parts, like you either decide to continue and, and loop back or you end in style. So everyone has to know, what does that mean? How am I ending in style? Sure. Let me quickly explain uh, increase. So increase is just you're in an environment and you're going to maximize the emotional value. And there are different techniques that you can do to do that. Uh, essentially, you want to get the most out of wherever you're at. So you could use challenges. You could use intrigue to pull people in. You could... Uh, entertain them. You could, you know, there's like all these different options and I run through a bunch of them in the book and then continue is probably where a lot of people, uh, where there's a lot of like pitfalls. And the reason is that selecting where to go next is, can be very difficult. So I recommend that you look at four things. One, and I call these, this the rate. R is the risk and unpredictability of the next location. So depending on if you want to increase uh, the state of the activities, you go higher risk. If you want, if you just did something insane and you need to mellow out, you reduce the risk in whatever the next thing you do is. Uh, The activity and ambiance. So that is uh, if you are going to be at a hookah bar or if you are going to play tennis or if you're going to uh, go rock climbing, right? Each activity and the ambiance that that activity takes place in will affect the mood of the people that you're with. Transportation. Uh, If you're in a city and people are wearing high heels, you can only walk like three blocks. If people have been drinking, driving is out unless you can get an Uber. So you have to consider the number of people that you're with, how far you're willing to travel, any travel that's more than 10 or 15 minutes, you begin to kind of like lose momentum. So you have to know that where you're going is either worth it or pick someplace else. So you end up being able to reduce the the field of options from infinite and overwhelming to like three, five, six, whatever it is, and make an educated decision for where to go next. And a lot of that has to do with what your mission is and what your constraints are. So, and then if, if you do... Uh, choose to transport or continue somewhere else, then you loop back through and you push boundaries and you increase and you continue again. Or what's critical is you end with style. And the reason is that research by this brilliant uh, Nobel laureate, uh, Dan Kahneman, found that human beings don't process the duration of pleasure or pain. 
what they notice are the peaks of an experience and how they end. Uh, like a classic example I give is, let's say you're on a date and the date's going incredibly well and you're three hours in and you're so excited to hang out with this person again. And just at that moment where you're going to lean in for that kiss, the person looks you in the eyes and says the most awful thing you have ever heard. And you get out of there and your friend's like, good date or bad date? And you say? Bad date. Awful Three date. hours of perfect, three seconds of terrible. It's terrible. That's because you ended on a negative note. So same thing with an adventure. If you go out and you let it deteriorate into nothing so that you're at like some pizza place at four o'clock in the morning and your friends are like, dude, we need to go meet girls. You're like, what are you talking about? It's four o'clock in the morning. It's not going to happen. Let's just go get some sleep. And they keep pushing it and it deteriorates into nothing. One, you will remember the experience less fondly making you less likely to participate in the future. And two, you're going to wake up exhausted the next day, feeling like you're wasting the day away because you have to get over a bad hangover and uh, this exhaustion. So, all right. So awesome framework, right? And, and, and a way that I've never thought about it in terms of I never actually thought that's what's happening, but obviously everything has happened. It's 4 a.m. You're at a pizza place. Like everyone can relate to all the instances you put out there without knowing they thought about it. When you're planning something, because now I'm thinking, I like, oh man, I really do have to plan to make sure everything goes right. How, like, how is it when you're actually out there? Do you have in your head, all right, if this is happening, I'm going to go do this? Or is it much more spontaneous? Like, have you gotten good at the framework, I guess I should say, so that you're making decisions on the fly that are actually working because you practice it? Or do you have to sit there and think, all right, what should we do? Because it seems like a lot of mental computing throughout the night. There's a, So I experience a ton of mental computing, but that's also because I'm constantly trying to refine and understand more and more. Uh, and you'll, my friends will sometimes look at me and I'll be scanning a crowd and it looks like I'm, you know, trying to calculate the 50th number in pi or something like this weird look on my face. Uh, but if I were to simplify it, uh, what I do is I just make sure to engage with anybody who seems interesting constantly and say yes to almost any opportunity that comes my way. And so like if I were to give a simplified version of it, it's, the easiest way to get out of your comfort zone is to continuously say yes to things that you don't necessarily even think you might enjoy. Right. And I say yes to like one of the chat or two of the chapters in the book, I decide that I want to prove that you can have fun anywhere. So for new year's, I go to Dillsburg, Pennsylvania population, 2,500 and like 36 or something like that. This is not someplace anybody optionally goes for new year's. And in fact, at one point, uh, I'm driving in between towns where my friend Liam is and the state troopers pull us over and they refuse to believe our story that we optionally came to town for, uh, new year's and detained us for two hours. Uh, we thought we were going to be held by the police because it was such an outlandish idea that anybody would ever do this. And I'm like, no, no, just Google me. I, this is what I do. There's articles in like different magazines. Please just check it out. And like we had virtually no internet connection, so I couldn't even prove it to them. It was a mess. But it was a great experience. And uh, sometimes people talk about type one fun and type two fun. 
like type one fun is fun that you enjoy in the moment and type two fun is in retrospect. I believe the reason that it exists is because of the peak end rule, because it ended in a certain way that the story was great. I will often say yes to just anything that I don't think is a major threat to me. Although I sometimes say yes to things that are. Uh, so like I set my trips polar swim record for uh, longest Arctic dip. So I was in the water longer than everybody else by like a multiple. And I lost all feeling in my arms and legs and was walking around the beach in my bathing suit in, you know, three degree weather or whatever it was. Uh, I'll do stupid stuff. Uh, but for the most part, it's calculated risk. So here you were talking about calculated risk and, and we're talking about adventure or nights out, but you know, this can obviously take the form of, of traveling and doing stuff while you travel. What is some of the things like, is there ever times where you sit back and you say, okay, I'm not going to engage in this framework. Like I, I don't need to have an epic adventure or anything like that. Like, is it, is it basically, do you use it when you, when you want to, or are, is it something that you're constantly doing? Because I think to some people it might sound like, whoa, this could be a bit, a bit tiring. Like this guy's doing all this kind of stuff. This could be a bit tiring to me. Uh, so the, it, first of all, uh, nobody does it like I do because I can't help it. Right. Ever since I was a, a kid, I have to be looking at these scenarios and wanting to understand and wanting to make like small tweaks to the, so the effect socially. And I look at research constantly to understand better what will enhance the experience and what retracts from it. And so, yeah, that's tired. But I've done all of the experimenting so that you guys don't have to, right? Like I developed this model because it's pretty simple. You, you come to a new location and you're like, okay, now let's find something that makes us a little uncomfortable so we can get out of our comfort zone. Maybe we want to increase. And so we take on a challenge like, okay, let's see who could accomplish X, Y, or Z first or whatever it is. Or, and there's also just nothing wrong with having a quiet night and having a drink with a friend. Not everything has to be an epic adventure. It's just good to know that you have that option and you can turn it on whenever you want. And just, just as an important side note, the book is called the 2AM principle because nothing good happens after 2AM except the most epic experiences of your life. And so part of it is also knowing when to call it, right? So that you don't waste your energy and your experience trying to pursue something that's just not going to happen. Uh, you know, although I can turn it on and most nights can be these outlandish experiences or even days, uh, not all of them are. And if you sum up all of my experiences throughout my life, I've had far more failures than successes. So it's, it doesn't, you don't have to put the pressure on. Yeah. I think that's a really important point that, and, and this goes for traveling, this goes for anything is that there, if, if you expect everything to be amazing and perfect all the time, you're inevitably going to be disappointed because it's not going to be that way. And you have to have the highs or the lows in order to have the highs. And I remember a story of one of my best friends. I told him to go to Argentina for his honeymoon and he called me the second day and he's like, is it okay that I hate Cordoba? And I'm like, no, you can't. You know, I'm thinking in my head, like, you can't hate this place. I helped you get there. This is your honeymoon. You have to like, and I thought, wait a second. Yeah, it's okay. Because if you, if you dislike some places, that means you're going to like so many more of those places, you know, on the, on that same scale. And, um, in order to really enjoy something and to have these great times, you have to have the times that are 
as you mentioned, failures, you know, or, or, or just not as good as the most epic things. I think that's an important thing that gets lost, especially when people think of traveling and especially when people only have a few weeks to travel or, or a minimal amount of time. That's why they try to cram everything in because, you know, I have to get it done. I've got these two weeks. Everything has to be amazing. When you kind of force, force the issue, it can be tough. Mm. Yeah. It's, uh, one of the big things is that you never want to confuse uh, expectations for reality. And that that's one of the reasons that I hate New Year's Eve is that people always feel the need to make it like insane and crazy and so on and so forth. And it's just not realistic. It's hard enough having like a really wild night on a normal night, but a night where nothing is going to be ever going to fulfill like the New Year's expectations like I just refuse to play the game, right? So there's amateur holidays I will not participate in. They're like uh, New you'll, Year's. You'll go to Dillsburg instead. That's exactly right. <laughs> Every year I go away from New York uh, because New Year's Eve in New York, although it can probably be really fun for like an outsider once, like, oh, I'm going to come in. I, I live in you know a small town or I live in another city. I come to New Year's once in New York. When you grow up there, it's – and I think this is probably a local experience for Many people, when you grow up in an environment, the big social events like aren't necessarily that fun. Right? You you don't find uh, people who live in New Orleans going to Bourbon Street on, you know, during Mardi Gras. And if you're in uh, in New York, you're not going to Times Square for New York. Like it's just not. These are outsider events because the novelty is really worn off. And so that's kind of how I. I feel about uh, these events is that there's there's no reason to participate. It's New Year's. It's like St. Patty's Day or any cultural event where there's like lots and lots and lots of drinking. Um, and then the third is any birthday before the age of 25. Like it just won't end well. It just does not. End. There's so much expectation. And I, you know, somebody's 21st birthday. I'm so happy. I'm past the point of, of caring about that like it's just yeah. a mess yeah well and uh, <laughs> that is so true you know and especially we're talking about traveling or, or people who are in new york city for new year's eve or, or mardi gras for um in new orleans then uh, now all of a sudden with with what we have with airbnb instead of even partaking because you probably won't like it anyway rent out your apartment for you know 10 times what you normally would and go take an awesome vacation right and get yeah. out of there um get out of town it, it's so i, I, I I I love the whole Airbnb system. It's not something I can personally do, but I'm all like I I stay at Airbnbs because I love having when I travel. I love having a place with a kitchen and that I can invite people back to and we can have drinks together or something at four o'clock in the morning and hang out and get to know each other. I personally can't Airbnb my place because it's just too complicated. But um, I but I all for it. And I think it's a great way for people to subsidize. Uh, their travel and lifestyle. Yeah. It's a great travel. For sure. Now, we talked in the top about how to successfully crash a party, where we said we were going to learn how to successfully crash a a party with proper etiquette and how you got invited to Kiefer Sutherland's Thanksgiving dinner. So, you know, we're talking about epic nights here. And I think most people, I would guess 95% of people, have never really crashed a party you know, of of someone maybe they didn't know or or anything like that. How does someone go about doing that? Because that would be if if all goes well, an epic night, something you'll talk about and you'll probably remember because it's so 
off the wall, crazy type thing. So how do you successfully crash a party with proper etiquette? Well, so there's a few things. One is if you go to a wedding and it's, uh, and it's large enough, it can't be like a 50 person wedding, then just throw on a tux and nobody's going to question what you're doing there. And there, I think there are wedding announcements in a lot of newspapers, so you can just track down. Or if there's a really nice hotel, like, you know, what are some of the nice hotels in New York, the Ritz, the whatever, Four Seasons, whatever it is, right? Then just find out if their ballrooms are committed on certain dates and just show up. Uh, so that's one thing. Then another thing is, um, and the bigger the event is, there's often more security, but the more anonymity you can get. So it's easier to, to kind of hide. If you find yourself crashing a event that's more intimate, people will know you're there. And so I think that there's a few things you can do. One is you can find the host and hostess and say, listen, I've stumbled into your event. Um, I, I'm essentially crashing it, but I'd love to stay. Um, and here's what I can offer, right? So it's essential to provide value. You're not a freeloader. You're either going to entertain people with stories, bring a bottle of champagne, something. Uh, because if it's small enough, then it's just going to create tension and upset people. And that's not fair considering you're an interloper. Right. What is what uh, is what is something okay, so you kinda of mentioned like tell stories, bring a bottle of champagne. What is one of the, or two of the things that you have in your let's say bag of tricks for people <laughs> to to crash it but then to provide value? So I one of the things I often travel with is African miracle fruit. It's this fruit that temporarily changes your perception of flavor. It's not a drug, it's a chemical reaction that takes place on your tongue. And so I have that as a novel experience. Uh, the other is I have a collection of completely outrageous stories that I can tell at any point. And because I'm a human behavior scientist, I give talks professionally around the world. And so I, I offer uh, to say, you know, I can say a few words tonight and it'll blow people's minds. It could be a lot of fun. Or I used to work as a party enhancer uh, back in the day, meaning I'd dance at like bar mitzvahs to get the crowd going. So like I'm, I really bring the party, right? I'm not a great dancer, by the way. It's just... I, I'm very social. So I got in college, I supported myself a little by working these events. So that was all, uh, I, it, but you have to, it's situational. You have to understand maybe it's getting behind the bar and making some great cocktails that nobody else knows how to make, or maybe it's, uh, teaching them a game that everybody can play, but whatever it is, it's about providing value and understanding what the host's intentions are with the event. And if you get uh, if you get caught, no justification. You just get out of there. You know, just apologize. Be like, listen, I, it was worth a shot. I tried it. But you don't want to ruin somebody's special day or their their family event. Right? Is it is it something that you do often, or is it just something that if if I this... crash a lot of as far as crashing events, I'll talk my way past security quite often. I have a few techniques, but they they mostly would work for me. I try to be very confident. I try to, while the person before me is speaking to the them, and I try to read as many names off of the list as possible, and I just say I'm one of those people. Like I do all that stuff all the time. Uh, the bigger issues are when you're doing some crashing a private home or like a, a smaller event. Uh, corporate events are easy, right? Like 
nobody really cares. Or if it's like a big party at Sundance or Art Basel or like one of these things that a, a brand uh, is doing an activation, then uh, often you can get away with stuff if it's if you're trying to to go somewhere that they don't want to risk any embarrassment. Right, with kicking you out. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and so if you begin to, if there's a risk that there could be something really embarrassing that happens, then they just won't fly. And so uh, I know people who've had all of their drinks paid for and their food to leave a a private club because they were getting too drunk and they're like, just leave now and we'll cover all of your expenses. And so like $300 now that's not me. I'm not like the rowdy get in trouble kind of guy. I'm more like the, I'll get everybody rowdy and happy and excited in the entire place. But you know, it's, it's amazing how people engage and interact. Yeah. Now, all right. So the Keith Kiefer Sutherland Thanksgiving dinner, was this something you crashed or is this something you were invited to? So I wasn't technically invited to <laughs> technically. But, okay. Uh, so it all started when I, I'm going to have to give the very short version of this. When my brother and uh, came to New York, surprised me a week before Thanksgiving for one night, he had to be up at three o'clock in the morning to go to uh, the airport to go back home. And what happened was he said, meet me for one drink. And I was like, listen, there's no chance it's going to be one drink. One drink ended up turning into like three or four. And then into us wanting to go check out like a night spot in downtown Manhattan. And as we were about to enter it, I saw this guy walk into a, a restaurant bar with a friend of his. And I was like, oh, that couldn't be who I think it is. So I grabbed my brother and I say, follow my lead. And we walk into this clearly closed restaurant and they go, sorry, we're closed. And I go, Kiefer, is that you? I haven't seen you since that time. We drank together at the Spotted Pig, which is another story that I can't get into now. And he called me over. And so he came in and I sat down and it was Kiefer's friend, Kiefer, myself and my brother. And the, reluctantly, the people behind the bar were like, OK, what are you having? And I'm like, I'll have what he's having. And Kiefer proceeds to teach me how to drink whiskey which was awesome. And then uh, they said something, they said something that caught me off guard. The guy behind the bar says, if you're going to be here after hours, you have to partake in our traditions. And he starts pulling something from behind the counter. And I'm freaking out thinking this is going to be like massive amounts of drugs. Uh, And so I'm kind of like, I don't do drugs. This isn't my thing. And what he pulls out was, far, far, far more dangerous. It was Jenga. And the four of us, plus the the staff there, spent the next three hours getting absurdly drunk, battling in Jenga. Kiefer pulled out his glasses, started passing him around. Like there was, you know, all this craziness and we invited him to Thanksgiving and he's like, oh, I do Thanksgiving at the secret location. You should come. But we were all really drunk. And so at three o'clock, my brother's like, listen, I gotta get to the airport. We leave, he leaves, and then a week later, my brother comes back for Thanksgiving, and it's the Friday after Thanksgiving, and I, I, I'm hanging out with him, and I go, listen, um, uh, unintentionally, I ended up with Kiefer's glasses from that night, and I think we should return them, and we know where his Thanksgiving dinner is, it's on the east side over there, blah, 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 and he goes, 
uh, okay, let's let's go. So <laughs> me, me, my brother, his wife, and a girl I was on a date with uh, all show up unexpectedly at Kiefer's Thanksgiving and he comes up to he walks up to us and he's like can I help you and I pass him his glasses and I'm like listen uh, I'm sorry I unintentionally took these and he's staring at me like very intense Jack Bauer style right like <laughs> as if I'm some enemy of the state about to be interrogated it looks between the glasses and me and uh, he goes I can fortunately afford to replace these and I'm like, oh, my God, we should leave, shouldn't we? What's going on here? Like, is he about to call security? And he cracks his mind. He's like, come join us. And so uh, we all come in. We have a, a drink and his food, and it's like 20 people. So we've just increased the entire group pretty dramatically with the additional four. And his uh, daughter grabs a box off of the shelf and says, we should play a game. And... Of course, what are we playing? She pulled out Jenga. So we spent the next like two hours playing Jenga with the family and they were the most wonderful hosts and everybody was super nice and generous. And and, uh, and that's how you ended up at Kiefer yeah. Sutherland's for Thanksgiving. Now, quick question. Did you drink with him at the Spotted Pig or was that a line that you just threw out there to get uh, past? Oh, no, no, no. I didn't lie. Uh, he had shared his drink with me at the Spotted Pig. But that is a story that is well, well, well worth reading. And uh, I would encourage everybody to check it out. Uh, it's The chapter is called What We Lacked in Styles We More Than Made Up For. And so uh, it involves a few other, uh, at least one other celebrity and, um, and a lot of craziness. Awesome. Well, I, I'd ask you for a travel mishap, except we've already touched on a bunch of them and, and just kind of some really great stories in general. And a lot of the stories that you're referencing and that we referenced with Pamplona and all that can be found in the book, The 2AM Principle, Discover the Science of Adventure. So guys, if you are um, interested in that, we're going to tell you how you can get that. Highly recommend it. And John, I want to ask you real quick, what's in the pipeline for you next? You talked about some of the projects you were doing. Obviously, the book is coming out. Um, if people are listening to this right when it goes live, the book will be coming out next week. If you're listening to it after that, you'll be able to pick it up anywhere. Um, but what else do you have wor- that you're working on? Uh, I pretty much get approached to do a show every few months. So maybe one will actually happen. Uh, I'm working on my next book. And then I'm looking at... Uh, what else am I working on? I'm going to go learn Spanish. <laughs> Uh, because I want to be a polylingual. So, uh, yeah, that's, I think, uh, but this book is really taking up so much of the time uh, that I very much, oh, and then our 100th dinner is coming up and I guess preparing for the next 100. Awesome. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Literally taking something that seemed random uh, in the first couple pages to me, especially adventure and good nights out, putting some science behind it and helping people all over have these more meaningful, fun, and epic lives through this framework and realize that it is possible to do it, um, especially if you have some thought. It doesn't have to be the same bar over and over again. Go and try to get drinks and food without money, right? And all of a sudden, it's a, it's a brand new night. So remind people one more time how they can come find out more about you. Of course, how can they get the book and how can they connect with you? Uh, so... Uh, the book can be found anywhere where they sell books. So Amazon for sure, Barnes and Nobles, um, 
Or if you see somebody on the subway with it, you can just try and steal it from them. I'm not encouraging that. I'm just saying it's possible. Uh, you can get a hold of me at I'm John Levy, TLB, J-O-N-L-E-V as in Victor, Y as in yellow, T like Thomas, L like Lion, B like Boy, on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. And uh, if you want to get a hold of me for whatever reason, you uh, my website is johnlevytlb.com. And you can find out plenty of stuff there and uh, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. So uh, please feel free to reach out. And I try to answer every email, but I'm, I'm <laughs> there's so much going on right now. It might be a little tough. Awesome. Yeah. And guys, don't forget, if you are listening right when this comes out, um, as most of you do, you can pre-order the book because we're having this come out. The, the book release date is November 8th, 2016. Mm-hmm. Right, John? Yes. Uh, so here's one thing I'll say. I never, ever thought I would be a published author. I'm dyslexic. And growing up, I was the last kid in my class to learn to read. I struggled with it um, most of my life. And uh, it would literally be a dream come true to hit one of the bestseller lists. And uh, a lot of that is these pre-orders. So uh, if you're listening and you're, uh, the book is incredible. I couldn't, uh, in encourage you to more to read it you'll enjoy it and it would be a dream come true to have your support so thank you yeah and i can tell you that as i already said in the first five pages i had a complete mental shift typically that does not happen um you guys want to check it out because not only does it talk about all the framework and dive deeper into the things we discussed here but there's some incredible stories and that's what i love about it john is that you're weaving your own life and your own stories in and saying hey not only am i going to say this is what you should do but here's what it here's how it worked for me and here's what happened and um it just makes for not only a fun read but something that people can relate to and i think that's hard to do when you're talking about science sometimes right it can be dry and boring and this is anything but so um, please, guys, check it out. The 2 a.m. principle, discover the science of adventure. You can pre-order it. If you do, that'd be great. Amazon would be awesome. And if you're listening afterwards, of course, you'll be able to pick it up. Any, as John said, anywhere books can be found, you can pick that up. So thank you again, John, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This was a treat. And uh, everyone who's listening, don't forget, uh, we've linked everything up in the show notes. You can find that extrapackofpeanuts.com slash pods. The show notes for this episode, for all the other 250 plus episodes we've done can be found there. You can follow us Instagram, Twitter, at Pack of Peanuts. And uh, don't forget, if you're looking for a good travel backpack, sponsor of today's show, Tortuga Backpacks, you can go to tortugabackpacks.com. Use the promo code EPOP, E-P-O-P, all capital letters. That'll get you 10% off your entire order. So thank you for tuning in, everyone, today. Thanks for the continued support. As always, that makes us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. And until next time, happy free travel. Travel.